This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Well, thank you so much for being with us here on the program. As you can tell by our big fancy background, yes, it is indeed Constitution Day, and we're super excited about it. Glad to have you here with us on Constitution Day. It is the day, of course, that our Constitution was signed. We're going to get into that in a little bit, but of course, because of the situation right now, and as we always do on Thursday, we are going to start with local news, and specifically, since it is Thursday, we are starting with our coronavirus update. So we are going to get to some Constitution Day stuff here in a second. We're going to get to some stuff that's going on and bring with the CDC. But first, the coronavirus update. So let's look at the latest numbers from the Alabama Department of public health. You can see here from the graphic from their website that we currently have 141,757 cases in the Yellowhammer state. We have 2,401 deaths, 16,079 hospitalizations statewide. Uh, tested is really interesting because we have 1 million 31,253. That's right. We actually passed the 1 million mark this week. So that was a big milestone. I believe we passed that on Monday, if I'm not mistaken. But it, it was sometime this week, sometime since our last uh, time that we've been meeting here. So uh, that and then also 61,232 presumed recovered cases. So overall, that's the status of the coronavirus here in the state of Alabama. By the way, the fatality rate continues to dip, but it is dipping at a very, very slow pace right now, even slower than we were talking about last week because it dipped slightly, but the dip was so minute that if you were rounding up to a certain decimal place, you really wouldn't be able to tell the difference. So if you were rounding up to only the, the uh, tens place in the percentage the fatality rate wouldn't have changed, but, you know, luckily we actually calculate to the hundredths place. So the fatality rate in the state of Alabama as of today is 1.69. But remember that if you're going by the CDC's estimates that roughly 10 times the amount of people have this virus as we believe have the virus, then that would actually put us at 0.169. So remember that the flu, just for a reference point, is 0.1% fatality. So it is slightly higher than the flu, but not by a whole lot. And so that is the fatality rate that we're looking at right here. So let's go ahead and dig into some of the numbers a little deeper. Let's go to, again, numbers coming directly from the Alabama Department of Public Health. Let's go ahead and look at our cases and how we're doing on the averages here. These are all specifically from the state of Alabama. You'll notice that our seven-day average for this week is 885. Our seven-day average from the previous week is 1,323. So we are still in a pretty noticeable decline from that. That is a decrease of 438. That's, that's a significant percentage point, by the way. That, that's like 40-ish percent. I believe that's about a 40% drop. Well, 40% may be overplaying it a little, but it ain't far from that. And so the fact that we're seeing such a drastic decrease in the span of a week is indicative of a couple things, but primarily it's just that we had a really long ways to fall because two weeks ago we had a really substantial increase 
in the amount of cases. And so we're still coming off of that. And that's the reason you're seeing a very dramatic decrease over the past week. Now, let's look at the monthly averages. So this is the 28-day average for the month that we are currently in, the 28-day average that ends as of today. So going all the way back to August the 20th, and remember that all of this is since the mask mandate was put into effect on July the 16th, our daily average for new cases in Alabama is 1,224. The previous 28-day average, this is before the mask mandate was put into effect, so that would be June the 18th through July the 16th before Governor Kay Ivey put the mask mandate into effect is 1,156, which means still today that our daily averages without the mask as of right now for the past 28 days is still 68 more per day than it was before the mask mandate was put in place. So this again puts a, a pretty substantial I don't even know what the way, right way to call it, but because I was going to say this kind of puts the nail in the coffin to the debate, but the truth is that nail's been in that coffin for a really long time. We're just beating a dead horse at this point. The overwhelming preponderance of data shows that especially when even when you're talking about cases, which is the thing that the mask mandate is supposed to prevent, it, it sort of tangentially is supposed to prevent deaths and hospitalizations as well, but only because it prevents cases. Cases are the best measure as to how well the mask mandate is actually working, because if you had a mask mandate, for example, and your cases stayed relatively the same, but you were having a decrease in deaths or a decrease in hospitalizations, well, that's more of an indication that you're treating it better, not an indication that the mask is actually doing something because the mask is only designed to prevent a person from contracting the virus. It doesn't have any effect on how severe the virus is once you get it. And so based on that, really the new daily cases is the only measure as to how effective a mask mandate is. And this is week after week after week after week after week when we look at these averages and we are now more than two months removed from uh well yeah it would be as of yesterday because that would have been the 16th and it was enacted on july 16th we are now two months removed from the start of this thing the virus only has an incubation period realistically of 10 days but they say about 14 and still here we are we've had one or two weeks where it was actually down a little bit but if I'm not mistaken, six out of the eight weeks that we have had where we were tracking this and looking at the coronavirus numbers, the cases have been up since the mask mandate was put into effect. This thing simply does not work. The data bears that out. So let's go ahead and look at the next statistic. Let's go ahead and look at hospitalizations. So we can pull up hospitalizations in the state of Alabama. You can see our seven-day average from the 10th to the 17th, again, that's this week, 106. Our previous seven-day average, 89. So we've actually gone up on hospitalizations in the previous week by not a, you know, mind-boggling amount, but also not by an insignificant amount either. That is an increase of 17 new hospitalizations per day. That is not a good trend for us. That is a uptick especially, you know, when you're looking at the numbers for the state of Alabama here recently, at least. And so that does not bode well that we're having an increase of 17, but we're actually a little down on the 14-day average. So our 14-day average for the 14-day period we are in right now, 
that is 98, our 14-day average before uh, the, the third, so the, the previous 14 days, 107, which means that is a decrease of 9. So there's a couple different ways you could read that one. You could maybe chalk it up to us just having a down week. A couple, like, in other words, the outlier isn't the fact that it's up in the past seven days. The, the outlier, in other words, the anomaly is that it was down in the past seven days. Then if you do look at the data that way, this is more a returning to normal. And, and I mean that relatively, obviously, but a returning to normal more so than an actual uh, uptick in the hospitalizations. But there's a couple of reasons why I'm not sure that that's the best way to look at it. It's hard to read these things because there's a number of factors that contribute to it. But looking at this one specifically, it seems to me, based on what I'm seeing, we had a, a pretty big upswing in cases. We're currently in a little bit of a downswing because, as you saw, our cases, seven-day average to seven-day average are down, even though overall, monthly, our cases are actually up. We're in a little bit of a downswing when it comes to cases. We had a really, really big upswing two weeks ago, and you're seeing an upswing above normal for last week as well. And so this upswing in hospitalizations is just trailing that because usually the way it goes is when you're in an upswing, week one, more cases. Week two, you have more hospitalizations. Week three, you have more deaths. That's generally the trend which this thing happens to go on. So uh, that's probably the reason for the elevated hospitalizations. Now let's look at coronavirus deaths in the... Whoop, that's the wrong one. That's for later in the show. Uh, the, the latest deaths in the uh, Alabama Department of Public Health numbers. So your seven-day average for this week is 14.3. Previous seven-day average for the week before, that is 129 so we have an increase of 1.4. Now, what that means is, because that is an increase, not a massive increase, not even two more people per day, but you're probably seeing the very early stages of what I was just talking about. You're probably seeing the very early stages of that uptick, like I said. Week one, new cases. Week two, more hospitalizations. Week three, more deaths. And so that's probably what we're seeing. We're, we're sort of on the cusp of that. We're seeing a few more deaths this week. We'll probably see a decent uptick next week and the week after. And then hopefully it'll start trailing down on the deaths. But let's go ahead and return to that so we can look at the monthly averages. So the monthly averages for coronavirus deaths, this is this month. And again, this would be, of course, after the mask mandate has been put into place. 17.7. The previous 28-day average before the mask mandate was put into effect, in other words, the month before July 16th when that was enacted, 14.3. So again, we are still having more COVID deaths, which is the most important statistic. I think you could argue the only important statistic. But you're still seeing more deaths since that has taken place. That is an increase of 3.4 more deaths per day on average since the mask mandate has been put into effect. Now, obviously, the masks are not the thing that is causing the deaths, but it also does prove that the masks are not effective in stopping new cases, new deaths, or new hospitalizations. Hospitalizations, it's harder to gauge in the state of Alabama specifically because we changed how we report the numbers. And so, uh, you know, there, there's really no good data point 
to be drawn from that one, unfortunately, is just, you know, they, they change the way that they gather the data and, and the new way may be better. I don't know, but it means that because we're measuring it differently, we can't really do an apples to apples comparison of mask versus no mask like we can with deaths and new cases. And in both cases, whether you're talking about more people that have the virus or more people dying from the virus, in both cases, we've actually shown higher numbers since the mask mandate was put into effect than we did before. So because of that cycle that I was talking about, we're probably going to be seeing an uptick of hospitalizations and deaths next week. Hopefully we continue this downward trend in cases, which will then translate to a downward trend in the other trailing statistics as well. Despite all of this, though, despite all of the evidence that the mask mandate is not working, that it's not having an effect, I don't think that it's making it worse, but I also don't think that it's making it better. And the evidence obviously bears that out, considering we have more cases and more deaths since the mask were put into effect. Despite all of this, despite the fact that we have been trying this for two months with zero success, Governor Kay Ivey says that there is no end in sight when it comes to the mask mandate. This was a statement issued to AL.com by one of her spokespeople, Gina Maiola. She said, there is not necessarily a magic number to, and, and this is, of course, speaking in reference to ending the, the mask ordinance, but instead, Governor Ivey wants to see our hospitalizations heading in a positive direction that they are now. First of all, when it comes to measuring the effectiveness of masks specifically, hospitalizations would have no effect on that because whether you get the virus or not get the virus, that's the only thing the mask mandate is, is supposed to do. And secondly, and I would say more importantly, even if that weren't the case, there is no way to measure that. Because right around the time, in fact, I think it was like within one or two days of the mask mandate being put into place, Alabama changed their rubric for how they count the hospitalizations. And so we can tell that it's gone up or down since the mask mandate put into place, but we no longer have a measure for before and after. So there's no way to measure hospitalizations. I think it's awful convenient that she made that the measuring stick on this, considering that there is no way to compare the two. That seems awful convenient from Governor Ivey's office. Then she continues on and says, uh, students and teachers making a safe return to the classroom, and of course she wants to keep our businesses open. This is mind-numbingly stupid. I, I mean, this is beyond stupid. We have been trying this for two months now. Been trying it for two months. The incubation period is 14 days. We should have been seeing the end of this thing, or at least the decrease in cases, four times over by this point. Because that's eight weeks. Only supposed to take two. And we're still seeing no effect from the mask mandate, and yet, Governor Ivey, for whatever reason, says that there's no end in sight, that she's just going to keep it going until further notice, and that there is no magic number for us to get rid of or even back off on the mask mandate. This is utter insanity. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. This makes no sense. Why would the governor subject her citizens to do this when it is very clear looking at the data that it is not having an effect? Now, one thing that may be a contributing factor to Governor Ivey's decision on this, which is unfortunate but probably also true, I happen to know that one of the people at the federal level that she is in contact with more than anybody else is Dr. Deborah Burks, who has a weird shutdown fetish that says that she wishes that we had done a complete shutdown and that it was 
even worse than it was, uh, you know, an even more severe shutdown than was already enacted, and then starts, you know, going after Sweden, which was ridiculous because their numbers are roughly the same as ours, despite the fact they never shut down. I, I don't understand any of it. None of it makes sense. But that's what Governor Ivey is now doing. And she's saying, yeah, well, you know, there's no data that it's actually working or doing any good. And, you know, we should have seen that data at least three weeks in, four weeks in. Now here we are an entire two months after the enactment of that mask mandate with no conceivable benefit so far, no observable benefit for sure. But we're just going to keep doing it, you know, just for kicks and giggles, I guess. None of this makes any sense. Why is Governor Ivy have some like access to secret different data by the Alabama Department of Public Health? Because none of the data that I'm looking at shows any effectiveness of mask whatsoever. I, I do not get this in the least. But this is common practice amongst politicians. And this is one of the reasons that I warned people and told them ahead of time in the primary, Governor Ivy is not a conservative. Kay Ivey has never been a conservative. She has always been, she's been a Republican, but she's never been a conservative. She loves taxation. She loves spending. She does not have small government principles or ideas. She occasionally does some things that are conservative. She has a very good record when it comes to the issue of life, which I give her applause on. She, she's not horrible and she's not, you know, the mayor of, of Wisconsin or Michigan. You know, she's not Whitmore. Uh, but she's not a conservative. And her behavior, looking at all of this and continuing to cling on to this narrative despite a shred of data that shows that it's actually useful or doing something productive, leads to that. I warned people in the primary, Governor Ivey is the least conservative out of all of the Republican candidates running. You know, I wasn't the biggest fan of Senator Hightower, and he was not my first choice when it came to who I wanted to be the governor, but even he was more conservative and had a more conservative voting record than Kay Ivey. And yet, for whatever reason, I guess it's just because you hate to vote against your meemaw, the people of Alabama decided that she needs to be the governor for some reason. I mean, I, I get her just taking Bentley's place, that makes sense to me, but the idea that Alabamians would reward her with electing her governor, I, that still blows my mind, and... I think that this shows why I was so against her. I mean, my instincts were proven right yet again, even though I'd rather they be proven wrong. Uh, I mean, Trump's a good example of that on a lot of things. I mean, some things that I was right on when it came to Trump, but Trump proved me wrong over and over again in the presidency, and I'd much rather have somebody like that and, and be proven wrong over and over again when I was thinking that it was going to be horrible than Governor Ivey, who unfortunately just has a tendency to prove that I was right about her from the get-go, that politicians do this junk all the time. They throw out some kind of crazy policy that has no data to back it up, no proof that it's actually doing anything good. They do it because it's politically, uh, the optics are good on it or whatever else. And then when you ask, okay, well, how do we know that it's actually working? They won't give you an answer for that. Okay, well, when can we stop this thing because it's getting in the way? Well, they won't give you an answer for that. Okay, well, what's the measuring stick that we can use to try to figure out whether or not this, they're not going to give you an answer for that? You see this all the time in education, and Democrats are especially bad about it. Republicans do it too, not letting them off the hook. But Democrats are especially bad about this. Well, we need more money for education. Okay, how much more? Well, I don't know. Well, what are they going to use the money for? I don't know. Uh, well, what 
how would we measure whether or not this money is being used effectively? Well, I don't really know. Is there a limit to how much you want to spend? Is there a cap on that? Well, I don't know. They do this with education. They do it with prison reform. I mean, they do it with every policy when it comes to spending, especially. Well, we, we need more money for welfare. Okay, well, how are we going to know that the welfare money is being spent? Well, I don't know. How much more money do we need to put in? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's over and over and over. I could give examples for this all day, but you understand the point. Politicians constantly throw a policy out there. They give you no way to measure how effective it is. They're not going to be, give you anything that you would be able to say that they are doing a good job or doing a bad job because they want all this ambiguity where people aren't really sure whether or not the thing that they put into place is actually working or not because then they're afraid to fail. And then they're not going to, to put any stop to it anytime soon if it's something that's undesirable because they just want the liberty to be able to do whatever they want. If you are going to put something like this in place, if you are going to ask something like this of your citizens, there needs to be a concrete solution. There needs to be a concrete number that we can get to to where we say, okay, well, once we've hit this point, then let's eliminate it. Governor Ivey will not do that, even when asked that way in a direct question. And unfortunately, she proves herself to be the career politician that I've always said that she is. So since we hit the 1 million mark on testing, I felt that it was only appropriate to go ahead and sort of do a comparison to how the state of Alabama is doing on testing just to, to get sort of an idea of how well we're doing, because I think that's something that's very productive. And uh, we should be, be patting ourselves on the back for getting to the 1 million mark in testing. But let's see how we're doing compared to some other countries, some other state. Well, there we go. Yeah, so our total testing as of today is 1,031,253. That means our per 1 million, our per capita number is 220,914. Which, by the way, if you're doing us compared to the other 51 states, and of course I'm talking about the actual 50 states, and then also District of Columbia is thrown in there because, you know, part of the U.S. as well. So compared to those other states, we are, 51, uh, we are 38th out of the 51 that they are counting in this. And then we are 30th if Alabama were a country. So if you're looking at the rubric, and I'm, I'm getting this data from Worldometers, if you're looking at all of the countries in the world, if you made Alabama into a country as opposed to a state, then we would be 30th. Now, there's well over 100 countries, which means that we'd actually be doing pretty darn good if we were a country. So let's look at this because 38th is, is not something that's uber impressive, but you know, uh, 38th out of the country means that we're not one of the states that is getting a, one of the really high test counts. That could be indicative of a couple of different things. That could be indicative of a lack of testing, a lack of testing infrastructure. It could also be indicative of the fact that we got tested, we got started testing late, which did happen, by the way. We got started testing later than most states did. Um, in fact, I think we were like fourth or fifth to last when we started testing for the coronavirus. And so we got a very late start, and because of that, we probably missed some of the testing opportunities early on. That was probably a big part of it. Part of it is because we have lower case levels than a lot of other states. Uh, we're starting to catch up a lot now, 
uh, but we had lower case levels overall with the states, and that meant that our testing was going to be lower because there were less people that felt sick and less people that felt that they needed to get testing. And, you know, part of it is also cultural and political and, and demographics and that kind of thing. And so there, there's a number of different factors that play into this. But 38th is the rank that we have amongst the states. But let's check out how we would do if Alabama were a nation in and of itself. So these are the nations with lower per capita testing than just the state of Alabama, if the state of Alabama were a nation by itself. Remember that we're 30th on this. So 33rd would be Ireland. 37th would be New Zealand, 38th, Germany. Now, I really want to point out Germany here, and that's an important one, because you'll remember that people on the left were telling us that we needed to emulate Germany's testing policy and just lauded praise on Germany's response to the coronavirus. Yet the state of Alabama, which is 38th out of the states, is still kicking Germany's butt on the world stage if Alabama were a country. And remember, all of these are per capita. This is not raw numbers. So we are doing it on a population-based scale. So we would beat out Germany. Germany is 38th in the world when it comes to testing. 39th would be Norway. 41st would be Canada. 42nd would be Italy. Again, Italy had really bad cases very early on, and so they probably missed some of their testing opportunities at the beginning. But also, you remember that there were even people... Freakishly enough, like Deborah Birch, and I will never understand why Dr. Birch said this, but she said that our response should have been more like Italy. Yeah, well, we're testing more than Italy. Just the state of Alabama, not even America, because America's 19th on this list. Just the state of Alabama tested more than Italy, by a substantial amount, actually, if you're judging based on the population. Then 45th is Austria. 46th is Chile. 47th is Finland. 49th is France, another one that got praised by the left over and over again for their coronavirus response. Yeah, Alabama is actually out-testing France by a, a substantial amount if you're doing it based on per capita. 51st is Switzerland. 52nd is Sweden. 57th is Greenland. 61st is Netherlands. 63rd is Greece, another one that the left praised on their response, even though to a much lesser extent than France, Italy, and Germany. And then 64th, China. China's 64th on the list because they're losers, bigly losers. So anyway, that, that's your list. And I want you to look over this real quickly. What do you notice about this? You notice it's an awful lot of modern, first world European countries. You'll notice that it's a lot of sort of, uh, not Slavic, that's the, the wrong region, um, Nordic countries. So you're seeing your, your Greenlands, you're seeing your Norways, that kind of thing. Of course, China on there, that's, you know, something in and of itself. But you're seeing a lot of those Nordic countries. You're seeing a lot of the European countries. And so what I want to point out and illustrate here is a couple of things. First of all, even in the state of Alabama, which comparatively is on the lower end of the list, we're not, you know, in the bottom 10, but we're close to it. We're in the lower part of the list when it comes to testing. And yet we are still beating out a lot of first world European countries, Nordic countries. We're doing better on testing than those things. And that's important to point out for a couple of reasons. But it also proves that what Trump has been saying and harping on for the past two or three weeks, well, really longer than that, but especially in the past two or three weeks when people come after him, when the, the press comes after him with questions about talking about how much higher our numbers are in the world. Yeah, 
because we're doing a lot more testing than the rest of the countries. We're 19th on the overall spectrum. Alabama, which is one of the, you know, states that's not doing that great when it comes to testing. We're still beating out other countries on this by a pretty wide margin. So even the states that aren't doing testing as often, we're still doing better than a lot of European countries. And so it's not fair to compare our case numbers because we're testing an awful lot more. And that does make a substantial difference when you're comparing this thing when it comes to population. And what I do find really upsetting about this whole thing what I find upsetting about the mask mandate with Governor Ivey and, and the calls from people like Joe Biden now, he's gone back and forth on this, but he said, well, I want to put out a national mask mandate. And then he said, well, it wouldn't be, a, it wouldn't be constitutional, so I can't actually do that. And then he came out and said, well, my lawyers are now saying that maybe it would be constitutional, which, by the way, is something that the left constantly criticizes Donald Trump for. And yes, that drives me up a wall, too. That's, that's totally fair criticism that Trump will come out and say, uh, uh, well, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to do this and you guys are just going to have to deal with it. And then um, it comes out as like, uh, it turns out that's not constitutional. And then he comes out and says that, uh, yeah, maybe I'll do it. I don't know, because everything that Trump says basically is a negotiation or at least what in his head in his head is a negotiation. Um the left gets really frustrated with Trump waffling back and forth on those things. Joe Biden is doing exactly the same thing right now. And that's not what aboutism. I'm just saying that, you know, that's a problem that Joe Biden has. It's like, well, it's unconstitutional. Well, you know, my lawyers are saying it might not be unconstitutional. And now his latest thing is, well, I'm going to get the governors and the, the people in the states together and ask them to do it. But if they don't do it, then I'm going to mandate it, even though it's not constitutional and I guess he learned that from his uh, VP pick who, when they were talking about just doing gun control and Joe Biden was the only Democrat on stage saying, hang on now, we can't just unilaterally through the presidency change gun laws in the country. That's something that the states have to do. There's a lot of things constitutionally you can't do. Kamala Harris goes, uh, well, let's just say we can. One of the most annoying laughs I've ever seen in my life. I can't even do a good impersonation of it. I can't laugh that annoyingly. But anyway, so this is the thing that irks me about this whole thing. And on Constitution Day, one of the days that we celebrate our founding documents that has brought more liberty and freedom to mankind than any other document in the history of the human race, with the exception of the Book of Exodus, perhaps. Maybe the Torah as a whole, but specifically the Book of Exodus and, and Moses being the great lawgiver and that being a template for the Constitution in many ways. With the exception of that, this is the document that has brought more people freedom and liberty than any other one in human history. And yet, our politicians just don't seem to hold those values. They don't seem to see them as worthy of defending. And that truly is something that is unfortunate. So what we'll do is we're going to take a quick break here and we'll be back in just a minute on tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us. So, as you know, it is Constitution Day, as you can tell by my big fancy background here. And uh, we're going to go ahead and dive into some Constitu- Constitution Day stuff, of course, on this day, September the 17th on 1789, which would be 233 years ago. 
Man, that uh, makes you feel old, doesn't it? <laughs> the Constitution is 233 years old. So anyway, um, 233 years ago it was signed, not ratified, that's important to note. This is the day that it was signed, that the Constitutional Committee decided that their work was worthy of preserving and bringing forward to the American people. It was not ratified on this day. It was merely signed, and the ratification process would take several years. That's why we don't have a presidential election until 1789, despite the fact that the Constitution was signed in 1787. And so that may be why some people might look at back at this and be a little confused, like, wait a second, but George Washington didn't take office until 1790. Yeah, well, that's why. It took a long time to convince the states that this Constitution was ready for ratification. This was a very vigorous debate. You know, I think we sometimes romanticize some of the ideas of the founding and the, the coming together of the Constitution, and it is a great moment in history, don't get me wrong. It is one of the greatest moments in history, if you want my opinion on it. But sometimes we make the mistake of romanticizing it to the point that we think, oh, all the founders came together and had all these great ideas, and they all agreed, and then they wrapped it up in a couple days, and everything was good. That's not how it happened, folks. The Constitutional Convention lasted for the entire summer and a little bit longer. They argued for this for several months. At one point, it got so contentious that they were planning to just break the whole thing off. They were going to go back and just continue to live under the Articles of Confederation. It was only because of Benjamin Franklin, and oddly enough, despite him not being a terribly religious person himself, one of the ones who suggested that and made the call to all the delegates assembled there to come together and start praying and have a daily prayer by one of the local chaplains to come in from one of the local congregations in the churches and pray over this, that they started to come together, they started to compromise, and I think a lot of that had to do with them being aware of the fact of the, the importance of their work and how it was going to affect other people, and also just because I, I think that there was some divine providence involved in that as well. So those are some important details to note in our story, but I think that because I go over this every year and, and I think about different things to do for Constitution Day, for the 4th of July with the signing of the Declaration of Independence. I try to do a show for the Bill of Rights every day or every year for, for Bill of Rights Day. So I always try to think about it because that's important to note, too, that the Bill of Rights didn't come until much later. So the Bill of Rights, of course, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, still part of the Constitution, don't get me wrong, but they're not really commemorated on this day because this is the day that the, the body of the Constitution, the first uh, seven articles of the Constitution, were put together. And so uh, that's really what we're talking about here today. And I thought about all the different things that I could do, the different things that I could go over, and especially, and I think it's so important now more than ever, to do this because our Constitution is largely unappreciated. It's come under attack by so many different sources. And so I think a really good place to start when that is happening is instead of diving into the intricacies of the separation of powers, which I certainly love doing, and I know that you, my audience, since you guys are, are constitutional nerds like me, you probably would enjoy that quite a bit as well. I get that there's value in that, and that's usually something that I do, but I think maybe it's time for us to get back to basics and on the things that unite us, and that's the reason why I decided that this year I would just go with reading the preamble and going through sort of an introduction to that, because that's what the preamble is. Ultimately, the preamble is an introduction. When you think of introductions, what do introductions do? If you were, for example, to sit down and write a speech and you had a message to convey to people, you would start with your introduction. And one of the things that you would do in your introduction is tell the people, why they are there, 
why you are meeting, why you are putting this thing together, and that's what our founders did too. They put inside the preamble, okay, this is who's gathering, this is why we're meeting, this is the purpose of this document, these are the things that we're going to go over in this document, and then they do a, a quick little closeout in the last part of the preamble, and so they, they fit a lot into a very small space in the preamble to the Constitution, so let's go ahead and read that now. And try not to hum along the Schoolhouse Rock version in your head. I know I certainly do. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty, to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. And there's just so much in that to go over, and we're going to go over it point by point. Uh, first of all, it's more specific and more tangible than the Declaration of Independence. Because remember, the Declaration of Independence, that's our mission statement. That's our goal. But it's all idealism. There's nothing concrete about it. It doesn't form a government. Now, it's important, and it is the basis upon which our Constitution is written. But ultimately, we have to remember that the Declaration of Independence... That's basically just missions and goals. It doesn't tell you how to get there. It just says this is the kind of country that we want to make. The Constitution was the first attempt to actually make that into something tangible and something that was realistic. And so the preamble attempts to do that. It has those same principles that the Declaration of Independence does, but it broadens them out and gives them some kind of effectiveness. It, it makes them real in some sense because it talks about the things that the founders believed that government was supposed to do. So first of all, it starts out with the who. Who is doing this? Well, that's pretty obvious. You can see it in the background right behind me. We the people. What was so different about this, and, and we almost gloss over it because it's so familiar to us now. When this happened, when this happened in 1787, it was a radically new idea that people would come together and form a government. There were governments that existed on earth at the time that did have representation. That is a thing that happened. Britain had its parliament. But in that case, it wasn't the people that came together and formed the government. The kings and the heads of, of different tribes came together and formed a coalition to where you had the king and then you had the lords and the commoners and then that evolved eventually into having a representative body that had some power in the government, but the origin was still the king. You still had monarchy. And that was true of all of the known civilized nations in the world. You had some, for example, in the Middle East that still had tribal rule where there were tribal leaders and heads of families and whatnot. But there was never a government in the history of mankind that came together originally with a representative body like that. The closest that they ever came was Rome, but even then that was something that wasn't originally started in Rome. Rome had a government preceding that. America was completely different because we just came together as the people and decided how we should be governed. And so the who is incredibly important. Then they go into the why. The why is in order to form a more perfect union. This kind of just seems like fluffy words that sound pretty to us today, but they're not if you know the context. You see, for 10 years, America had lived under the Articles of Confederation, which did kind of loosely tie the states together, but realistically, we weren't a country. 
we were several individual countries that just sort of had a contract with one another to not, you know, go in and kill one another. And that's about all it was. Uh, the, the Articles of Confederation, though it's a important founding document, there was very little teeth to it. There was no federal government. We weren't really a unified country. In fact, the Articles of Confederation was a, a much less authoritarian version of the EU. So think about it that way. Now, the difference in the EU is the EU was very authoritarian. The EU says, this is the kind of money that you're going to use. Uh, you're going to agree with us on all of these trade deals. And so EU was very authoritarian. The Articles of Confederation were sort of like that, but with significantly less teeth, and, and it couldn't tell the states what to do. It was basically a list of guidelines that the states just kind of agreed to. But there was no enforcement there was no way to settle disputes between states. None of that stuff was put into effect. And so the purpose of the Constitution, because remember, the original purpose of the Constitutional Convention was not to make a Constitution. Now, it became that very quickly. It wasn't very long before they realized that. But the original purpose of that Constitution, or the Constitutional Convention, was to fix the Articles of Confederation, and eventually they realized, yeah, there's no way to fix this. We've got to come up with something different. But originally that was the idea because the Union was falling apart. We were not one unified country. And so the Constitution's purpose is to create a more perfect Union. There was Union among the states. There was a lot of like-mindedness, but there was no way to really unify us in any real tangible way. The Constitution was an attempt at doing that where the, the Articles of Confederation had failed. And then five tasks are given. Five tasks which summarize everything that the Constitution is going to do, everything that the Constitution sets out to do. We believe that these are the ways to accomplish these five tasks that we have seen as fit for a federal government to engage in. The first one is establish justice. Well, that makes sense because there are certain things that the states individually are incapable of doing. For example, if you have somebody that commits a crime in one state and then leaves that state and goes to another state, then that state really doesn't have jurisdiction over that person. That's why we have the Department of uh, Defense. That's why we have the, well, not the Department of Defense, the Department of Justice, sorry. That's why we have the Department of Justice. That's why we have the FBI, to handle interstate crime. If we're going to be one nation, people need to not be able to just leave the country, essentially, by going from, you know, Massachusetts to New York. We can't have people doing that and then as a result of that, being able to get away with whatever crime that they have committed. That's why we need to establish justice. And by the way, this is something that is accomplished by the court system that is also set up in Article 3 of the Constitution. If there are crimes that take place between states, if the states themselves commit crimes, they need oversight in that sense. And so we have a Department of Justice in order to handle matters of that nature. We realized that that was going to be something that was important. And keep in mind that this is something that the founders would have gotten directly from the Bible. The scripture really only lists two purposes of government in the New Testament, and that is to punish the wicked and praise the good. That's it. Those are the only two mandates, which you, by the way, can find in the book of Romans, that the New Testament gives a, a government that they are supposed to be doing and so it makes sense that the very first one, especially for a group of Bible-believing people, they'd go, well, we got to establish justice. 
We've got to have a way to punish those that do wrong and encourage those that do right, and justice accomplishes both of those things. The second one is ensure domestic tranquility. This is pretty, you know, obvious. Just keep the peace. We need a way to ensure that peace is kept between the states. We don't want states going to war with one another over some kind of dispute. We don't need, you know, like we're seeing today, unfortunately, uh, insane riots in the streets. We don't need people that are just not going to enforce laws that are going to allow the states to devolve into anarchy. This, by the way, is one of the justifications for things like FEMA. The fact that the federal government, because states have the ability to help one another out to sort of facilitate that, and to aid states when there is some kind of natural disaster or something that is outside of their control for the federal government to come in and lend some assistance to try to reestablish order. That is also a purpose of government, is to ensure that there are not wicked people that do evil that would disturb the peace, and so ensure domestic tranquility. Now notice, it is specific to say domestic tranquility. We're not the world's police officers. We're not supposed to be going off and getting entangled into foreign affairs. In fact, our founders very, very stridently warned against that. But when it comes to domestic disputes, the federal government does have a responsibility to ensure that those things are handled. Now, of course, and you'll see this later on in the Constitution and especially in the Tenth Amendment, that they believe that it should be handled at the lowest level possible until the federal government absolutely has to get involved because they are the last resort. However, there is still a responsibility if that is unable, if, if the local level or a lower level is unable or unwilling to do that, the federal government does have a responsibility to see that domestic tranquility is ensured. The third one is to provide for the common defense. Now, this is something that is argued back and forth a lot between the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist, because keep in mind, we won the Revolutionary War without technically having a federal army. Now, you know, we kind of had state armies, but most of the war was fought with militias. And so this is something that is debated pretty hotly in the Constitutional Convention. Do we need a standing army? Do we need to just have, you know, random people doing this like we did in the Revolutionary War? But here's the thing you have to remember. There was actually a standing army. There were people that were career soldiers living in the states that wound up fighting the British. But before they did that, they were British soldiers. And so one of the things that comes out in this debate is we've got to have some people, officers, that kind of thing, that are ready and know the art of war and know how to lead people. Maybe we can rely on militias, and we'll see even later in the Second Amendment that they talk about militias specifically being something that is important to continue to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, keep the peace, and provide for the common defense. But we have to have some kind of infrastructure in place to keep those people ready and instruct them in how to act once that takes place, once there is some kind of wartime event that takes place. We didn't have a standing army for most of our nation's history. We didn't have a large standing army the way that we did in Korea and Vietnam. We really only had that we really only started doing that after World War II. Once World War II took place, we started kind of hanging on to a lot of the military that we had. In every conflict before that, we would have a war come, and we of course had officers in the military, and we had some career soldiers. But the vast majority of the soldiers that filled our ranks were people that were either drafted or volunteered because they happened to be of that age, and the second that the war was over and there was no longer any need, 
they shut down what is commonly referred to as the military-industrial complex, of course, coined by Dwight D. Eisenhower, and everybody just kind of went back to their business. The only people that stayed in the military as career military people were officers and leaders and that kind of thing, and of course there were some soldiers and privates, but it was relatively small compared to what it is today. And so they understood that the federal government, especially because they didn't want states warring with one another, it would be best if the federal government handled things for common defense, defense of the country. Now, if you want to handle something internally, that's why you have police. That's why individual states have their own Bureau of Investigations and Justice Departments and Attorneys General and that kind of thing. But ultimately, when it comes to the common defense, defense from foreign outside threats, that is something that is primarily done at the federal level through the military. You can even have individual National Guards, and remember that the governors of the states kind of act as the commander-in-chief for their individual National Guards, but when it comes right down to it, when it comes to us, the federal government is in charge of making sure that when it comes to foreign threats, that that is taken care of by the federal government, and that's the reason that this is put into the preamble. The fourth one, promote the general welfare. Boy, this one gets misconstrued all the time. Promote the general welfare is kind of the same things that we've been talking about, you know, making sure that the peace is kept, making sure that there are not people coming in from other places. Promoting the general welfare just means creating kind of an environment where people can work and thrive and that kind of thing. And, you know, there's some federal role in that. There's a reason that we have, for example, a state interstate system because we are doing something that creates the ability to travel between states. Uh, we, we do some regulation when it comes to things like licensing in the states. Uh, I think that our role is actually too big in that right now, but you know there is a role for the federal government to get involved. Unfortunately, normally what happens is because what we have, and, and this is brilliant marketing on the left's part, we have referred to welfare programs Things like taking money from some people to give to other people, we say, well, that's the general welfare. And a lot of people will use this part of the preamble to justify basically anything the federal government does. I actually had this discussion with a buddy of mine that uh, is very far on the left. And I was asking him because he said that the general welfare part of the preamble allows the federal government to do redistribution of wealth if they want to. And so my rebuttal to him was, so what is the federal government not allowed to do? Because we do have a Tenth Amendment that says that there are certain powers that are relegated to the states, and we have James Madison, the author of the Constitution, saying that the powers given to the federal government are small and defined, and the ones given to the states are numerous and indefinite. So if that's the case, how do you sync that with this idea that basically anything that benefits the people would be general welfare? And he didn't have an answer because there is no answer. The founders never intended this part of the Constitution to be a blank check to any program that the government wanted to enact. That was never what they wanted to happen based on the phrase general welfare. And here's another thing, too. Like I said at the beginning of this whole thing, the preamble is an introduction. And what the introduction is intended to do is to say, okay, here's the things that we're going to talk about here in the Constitution, and then when they get to the body after the introduction, these are the ways that you do them. 
are we really supposed to believe that when they were talking about general welfare, what they really were talking about were giant entitlement programs, free health care for all, free college education, all of that stuff, and the founders just kind of forgot to put that in there, even though they put it in the introduction, they just somehow, oh, slipped my mind, I forgot all those giant social programs we were supposed to put in there. That's not realistic. When they say the general welfare, they're talking about the things that are in the Constitution. Having a Justice Department, having a president, having a Congress, uh, being able to regulate interstate commerce, being able to settle disputes between states, being able to tax, that kind of thing. All of those things are already included in the Constitution. You cannot say that because of a line in the preamble that that was a justification for doing all of the things on your wish list that you want the federal government to do. All of those things were already included in the Constitution originally. Now, there is a way to amend the Constitution. If you want to add one of those things, propose a constitutional amendment. That's the correct process in order to allow the federal government to do something it was originally not designed to do. You don't get to look at something that was already existing and saying, oh, the founders clearly meant that, uh, yeah, universal basic income. That's what it meant by general welfare. That's ridiculous. If they wanted to include that, they would have. And so this is unfortunately one part of the preamble that is often completely you know, misused and misapplied. And then the final one, the fifth one, secure the blessings of liberty. So there's a couple different facets to this one. Obviously, liberty was the primary function of the federal government. They wanted to preserve a person's rights. They wanted to preserve a person's life, protect them from harm, protect them from evil people, and they also wanted to make sure that man was as free as humanly possible. Now, he also bared the weight of the responsibilities of freedom, but they wanted to make men as free as possible. We see this in the big three tenets that are talked about in the Declaration of Independence. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Property, if you're going by the Lockean way that he phrased it, and, and Thomas Jefferson's original draft actually uses property as well. So if that is the case, then ensuring the blessings of liberty would mean that not only are people guaranteed freedom under this Constitution, but also they are entitled to reap the benefits of that freedom if they use their freedom wisely to go out, serve their fellow man, make goods and services and products and labor that serves their community, then they are entitled to those blessings. They are able to reap the rewards of their good decisions. And that should be something that is allowed for them, allowed for their family. They can do with it what they want. So this is really that last one, the, the pursuit of happiness kind of clause. That's what the fifth task in this Constitution was given. That it is the blessings of liberty and that you're able to enjoy those blessings when you make good decisions and use your liberty wisely. And then finally, it gets to the for whom. Because we already talked about who. You remember, that was the very first thing that we did. We the people. So, we the people are doing this, and then they give you all the things that they're planning to do, and then finally, after they state those five tasks, they get to the last part. Why are we doing this? Who are we doing this for? To ourselves, in other words, we the people, and our posterity. So, children, generations to come, people that are yet unborn, the Constitution has often been referred to as a contract with those yet unborn. And this is part of the reason that it is seen that way. They specifically put that into the Constitution. By the way, it's also interesting to note that posterity, it could also be understood to be, you know, offspring or children, whatever you want to, you know, the common vernacular that you would like to throw in there. 
keep in mind that that means that the rights of the unborn, that would be included too. Even the ones that have not yet been conceived, even though, you know, conception is obviously the point at which life starts, obviously. But when it comes to this, they included the posterity as a part and a, a party to the rights that are guaranteed to human beings under the Constitution. So that's included as well. It's not just the people that were there at the signing of the Constitution or that were born and citizens of the country when the Constitution was put together. It's future generations. It's everybody. They intended for this thing to live on. And so that's a big part of this as well. And then finally, we get to the what. Finally, we get to the what, which is do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. And so this is really just kind of a sign off, but it's important because they say we do ordain and establish. So it's not just that we establish it. We are ordaining it to future generations. We are putting it forward, as it were. We are sanctioning it and saying, these are the things that we believe. These are our principles. So we're establishing the government, but we also ordain it as a set of principles as well. The Constitution is a law, but it was never intended to just be a law. It's also intended to convey certain principles of limited power, maximizing liberty, those kinds of things. And so it's not just the establishment, it's also the ordaining part saying that these are the things that we believe this is a reflection of American values. Now, is it that to the extent that the Declaration of Independence is? No, because it is a practical, useful document. And like any other man-made document, including the Declaration, it does occasionally have flaws, but they're saying these are the values that we hold the most sacred. And so, of course, the United States of America, that being the country that it's established for, just to clear up in case there was any doubt on that. So what we're going to go ahead and do is we're going to go ahead and go over this clip that I saw. Uh, unfortunately, even in this time of constitutionality and, and where we celebrate our liberties, there are people that uh, do not agree with this. And we're going to go over some of that in today's Daily Dose of Stupid. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, I'm going to do something a little bit different today. Since it is Constitution Day, I figured we'd go over a specific provision of the Constitution that unfortunately has been under attack quite a bit lately. And this is to be expected. It comes up pretty much every election year, and it's going to be even more of a pain this year because the Democrats are butthurt that they lost the last election and that they lost the last election despite Hillary Clinton winning the popular vote. And so because of this, the uh, it really comes as no surprise to anybody, but they have started to attack the Electoral College. And so I thought what would be fun to do today is if we went ahead and went over the top five stupidest arguments, since this is the Daily Dose of Stupid, the top five stupidest arguments against the Electoral College and them wanting to abolish it. So let's go ahead and go over that right now. Number five. Number five. One of my favorite ones and the one that probably makes me laugh the most, it's antiquated. I hear this all the time. Well, I just, I don't like this antiquated system of the Electoral College. And they, it's so funny because they talk about the popular vote as though it's a new idea and the Electoral College is antiquated. So here's the thing. 
a popular vote is essentially something that would be a vestige of a direct democracy. Now, it's obviously not an exact direct democracy because you are, an elect you are electing an official, a president, but there have been elected officials for a very, very long time now. Democratic popular vote to elect a official to represent the people, that goes back to about 500 B.C., so we're talking about ancient Greece, Athens. There were officers that were democratically elected by the citizens of Athens. And that goes back 2,500 years. So the Electoral College is, as of today, 233 years old. Yet somehow that's the antiquated idea and their solution to resolving that, just going to a popular vote, that's the new and progressive idea. Uh, yeah, your idea is 2,500 years old. It's such a funny thing that progressives do because they are progressives and that's how they think of themselves. And so because of that, they have to constantly convince themselves that all of their ideas are new and revolutionary and different. But normally their ideas are old, tired things that have been tried a hundred times and failed a hundred times. Normally that is the case. When you're talking about the idea just on the broadest scale of government taking care of people, that's actually one of the oldest ideas in government, that the government has the responsibility to care for the needs of the people as some kind of elitist living in an ivory tower and sending down food and, and supplies and everything else to the people. Liberty is a new idea. The idea that man can rule himself and provide for himself and doesn't need a king or a dictator or anything else to tell him what to do, that's a new idea. And the Electoral College is a part of that. It's one of the newer ideas. So the idea that the Electoral College is antiquated and we need to move to this really progressive new idea of a popular vote for president. Dude, <laughs> your idea is like eight times as old <laughs> as the Electoral College. So that one always really made me chuckle uh, when they're trying to make that case. Let's go to number four. Number four. Number four, and this one's really funny too, it always makes me laugh because it's not that they're wrong, it's actually a correct argument, it's just the argument that they're making is, a, is, is not a good one. Uh, so they'll say, when I ask, why, why do you want to get rid of the Electoral College? Well, it's not democratic. Yeah, it's not democratic. It was never intended to be democratic. That's a good thing. That is a point in its favor that is not d democratic. And this kind of ties into the last one that we were talking about. Democracies always commit suicide. That is something that the founders stated over and over again. They specifically didn't want America to be a democracy because democracy is mob rule. And in a democracy, the whims of the majority overrule the rights of the individual. If everybody just decides that, oh, well, there's a minority there, we should just take his stuff or kill his family or whatever, they can do whatever they want if the individual does not have rights. The old saying is that democracy is two sheeps and a wolf voting on what's for dinner. Well, that's accurate. Because just because something is dem democratically done does not make it a good idea. You know who was democratically elected? Saddam Hussein. You know who else was democratically elected? Adolf Hitler. And Vladimir Lenin and some of the worst people in the history of the world were won democratic elections fair and square. Just because the mob decides to do it doesn't make it a good idea. And so, yes, the Electoral College is not democratic. It was never intended to be. If you want further commentary on why democracy is bad and dangerous, 
you need look no further than James Madison in Federalist 10. He was articulating the stance of the Federalists at the time, and even the Anti-Federalists didn't agree with this. The Federalists and the Anti-Federalists disagreed on a lot. We just started talking about how the, the Constitution Day that we are celebrating today was the culmination of months and months of arguing back and forth passionately between ideas about government. You know what was never argued about? Democracy. They all knew that democracy was a bad idea. They all knew that that was not going to end anywhere good. There may have been some early debates about it, but they knew because they understood human nature and they understood history, especially coming from Greece, that when you put democracy in place, it doesn't survive long because it always commits suicide. It always runs roughshod over the needs of the minority. Socrates was murdered unjustly because of democracy. And if there's any group of people in the world that ought to be skeptical of democracy, it ought to be Christians. Remember that Jesus Christ was put to death by democracy. The crowd came together. Pilate asked, which one of these men do you want me to kill? The overwhelming majority said, give us Barabbas. We want you to kill Jesus. If there is any group of people in human history that ought to be skeptical of that, it should be Greeks, the Greeks because of Socrates, but even more so Christians because of what happened to Jesus Christ. And remember that when it comes to America, nobody referred to us as a democracy until FDR. All of our presidents, all of our elected officials, even people in the Democrat Party never referred to America as a democracy because they knew that it wasn't until FDR tried to make it into one. And so the idea that it's not democratic being a point against it, no, actually the fact that it's not democratic is a point in its favor. Let's go to number three. Number three. Number three is a funny one too. People in red states and blue states aren't heard. And so the, the thrust of this argument is if you're in an uber red state like Alabama or you're in an uber blue state like New York or California, then all of the people that vote opposite the way that your state does, your voice isn't heard. This is absurd. That's like saying that if you vote and whoever you voted for didn't get elected, then your voice wasn't heard. Well, no, my voice was heard, I just lost. And by the way, this is not a concept I am unfamiliar with. I have for a long time said, if you want to kill somebody's political career, have me endorse them. <laughs> Usually the person I vote for doesn't win. It's very, very rare for me to get the candidate that I want to actually win. That might surprise some people in California and New York and some of the other big blue states. But yeah, I live in a red state. And you know what usually happens? I wind up not winning. Now, I vote for a lot of Republicans. I don't vote for every Republican. I vote for a lot of Republicans. And in the general, you know, a decent amount of the time, the candidate that I voted for in the general comes out on top. But I lose almost every single primary because the most conservative candidate usually does not win. Does that mean that my vote didn't count or my voice wasn't heard? No. It means I lost. And it sucks that I lost, but I lost. That's the way that elections are supposed to work. And if I were living in a blue state, which I probably wouldn't do, but if I were living in a blue state, then my vote would probably make just as much difference there. I'm living in a very red state. If I all of a sudden decided to vote for a Democrat, that wouldn't mean my voice wasn't heard. I mean, my vote still counts. It just happens that I didn't win. And so this is a dumb, illogical argument. Uh, but there's another thing that you completely ignore when you make this argument. Nebraska and Maine do proportional voting. 
the states are at liberty to decide where their votes go. Nebraska can decide, you know, if a certain amount of our population decides to vote one way, we're going to give them an elector. Maine has the same thing. And by the way, if something like that were proposed in Alabama, you know what? I would be in favor of it. Even if it means one of Alabama's electoral votes goes to a Democrat, which it probably would. There's a reason we have Terry Sewell as a representative in the House of Representatives for the state of Alabama. There would probably be at least one Democratic vote from Alabama. But I'm okay with that because I actually really like proportional voting. But the thing is, that happens despite the fact that the Electoral College is still the law of the land, which means that we could do it without the Electoral College. So you saying that, you know, having a, a state where 51% vote one way, that means the other 49% isn't heard. First of all, that's ridiculous. But second of all, you still have the option of changing your state's policy. That's not the fault of the Electoral College. That's the fault of your state, if you believe that. But what's funny is most of the people that do try to make that case that live out in, you know, for example, California, New York. By the way, there's a lot of very conservative areas in California, New York. It just doesn't get talked about because people don't think about upstate New York or northern and rural parts of California. And you'll notice that those people never say, no, we'll go ahead and do proportional voting in California so that, you know, maybe 10 electoral votes actually wind up going to Republicans. They'll never suggest that. They'll say, oh, it's, it's so bad that these people's voices aren't heard, and, and it means that people in red states and blue states, their voices are not heard correctly. And I'll say, okay, well, make California proportional. No, 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 we don't want to do that. We, we don't want those votes to go to some Republican. They don't believe what they really believe. They're just making it because it sounds catchy and they, they think that it's going to be something that helps them in their favor. And here's another thing that they're completely ignoring, too. You can always move. That's something that you can do in this country. You don't have to get a passport or anything. You don't have to relocate in that sense. You can just pick up and move to a state that agrees with you more. Ben Shapiro. We found this out, what, a day ago, I think? Ben Shapiro, I, I want to say it was on, yeah, on yesterday, yeah. So yesterday on Ben Shapiro's show, he came out and said, big news, guys, I'm moving to Nashville. Ben Shapiro has lived in California his entire life, and he's saying, you know what, the state has run so terribly, it's so horrible, and I hate living here, I'm just going to move to Nashville. That's also an option. They act like it's not, and frankly, I wish that some of the liberals really didn't believe in that, because there's a whole lot of liberals moving out of California and into Texas because of how horribly their state is run right now, but... Moving is also an option. You can, you can choose to try to change the political uh, direction of where you are now, or you can choose to move somewhere else. Those are options that are afforded to you, and so they act as though they're completely helpless and can't do anything about it. And, oh, my voice isn't being heard because I'm in a state that disagrees with me. Okay, move to another state if it bothers you that much. I don't understand why this is something that is so difficult for them to grasp. Let's go to number two. Number two. Now, number two on this list, uh, the same states decide the election. Well, the reason that this one's so dumb is because it's just blatantly untrue. The only way that somebody could buy into this narrative is if they have spent zero time actually studying elections of the past. And to prove my point on this, let's go ahead and look at this map. This is from the most recent presidential election, Trump versus Clinton. And so you can see there 
that, you know, that some states went red, some states went blue. Obviously, several more went for Trump than Hillary, and that's why he is in the White House and she's not. Now, let's do a side-by-side -side comparison with that one and the one from Obama-Romney. So just four years before that. You notice anything different in these two? Trump-Clinton, Obama-Romney, 2012. Yeah, there's a little bit more blue up there than there is in the next election. And why is that? Look at the difference. If you're looking at the most recent electoral map, you'll notice that Michigan and Wisconsin are red. So there are several states that changed over, obviously. Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio. Those are typically thought of as swing states. And so, yeah, usually Ohio and Pennsylvania and Florida are very, very important in presidential elections because they are true swing states. However, one thing that people neglect when looking at this is that you've got the two Rust Belt states that switched over. Nobody thought that Michigan and Wisconsin were up for grabs. Nobody did. I didn't. I predicted that Donald Trump was going to lose this election, and in every single uh, test that I looked at, every single prediction that I made, I had Hillary Clinton winning Michigan and Wisconsin. I mean, for Pete's sake, uh, Wisconsin is the cradle of progressivism. And yet, it wound up going for President Trump. Swing states change over time. And the idea that the same states decide the presidential election every time is just ridiculous. There are some states that have been swing states for longer than others, but every state has the potential to be a swing state. Right now, they're talking about Texas going blue. And by the way, that's not just hearsay. It is on the cusp of going blue or at the very least being purple. Georgia has become much more liberal than it used to be. North Carolina might tip in the favor of being blue. Virginia at one time was a Republican stronghold. Now, because of the county surrounding D.C., it's virtually impossible to win as a Republican in the state of Virginia, at least if you're in that near the near to the D.C. area, it is now considered a blue state with a Democrat governor. All of that is true in the state of Virginia. And by the way, to further illustrate that point, let's go ahead and look at this uh, map from the Bush versus Kerry 2004 election. So you can see this one here. This is the 2004 electoral map. You notice anything different about this one? Well, what about Colorado and New Mexico? Those are red. They went for Bush. But that's, they're blue states now, right? Well, no, they're not. They became swing states after a while, after you saw more liberal people moving to places like Boulder and even Colorado Springs, which was typically thought of as being a Republican stronghold. Nevada went red, even though it went blue in the last election and went for Hillary Clinton. You notice all of these differences is that there are shifts that happen in regards to the way and the direction that states vote. And so the idea that all the same states are always picking who wins the election is simply untrue. But to beat this dead horse even more, let's go to this map from 1976, Carter versus Ford. So you can see here in this map, this one looks radically different than the other maps that we've looked at. I mean, look at that. The South is solid, solid blue. Texas, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, Florida, all going strong and hard for the Democrat Party. And which ones are the Republican states? California, Oregon, and Washington. And by the way, even New England, once you get past New York, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine, and Massachusetts and New Jersey going for Republicans?
this is the, the way that it was in 1976. And 1976 isn't real recent, but keep in mind, it's only 44 years in the past. This isn't ancient history. This is how quickly the states change. Swing states are changing all the time in the span of 44 years. So, you know, younger, less time than my mom and dad have been alive. We went from California being ruby red to bright, bright blue and the South being reliably Democrat territory to reliably Republican territory. And so this idea that, oh, well, it's the same states deciding elections all the time, that's a load of crap. There's no gentler way to put it. That's what it is. As recently as just less than 50 years ago, the states basically were the inverse of what they are now. Just goes to prove that if any party, Republican or Democrat, neglects the needs of a state for long enough, they're going to see that, sway, that state switch sides when it comes to elections. Now, this is my favorite one. Let's go to number one. And number one. So, number one, by far, without a question, the dumbest argument against the Electoral College I have ever heard, and by far the laziest, it's racist. This is the one of a, a very, very recent one, because there's always been some people that don't like the Electoral College and wanted to get rid of it. Obviously, that's amped up in recent years because of the, the, the spotlight that's been put on it because of Gore Bush and then Clinton Trump. But one of the most ridiculous arguments that I've ever seen made against it is this one, that somehow it's racist. So let's go ahead and look at this. Um, the... Basically, I'll just go ahead and give you the argument first. The argument is, is that it's a holdover from slave owners and slave, uh, slave states to try to make sure that slave-bearing states were the ones that were in control of who is the presidency, because those were going to be more rural areas and they were going to be the ones that controlled who was president. Therefore, that was a way to make sure that slavery stayed intact. Well, first of all, if that was the, if that was the plan... They did a really, really terrible job of it because slavery has been done away with for a really long time now. Obviously, their plan to use the Electoral College to make sure slavery continued in perpetuity didn't work. The second part of that is, who is the person that freed the slaves? Well, the president that did that would be Abraham Lincoln. How was Abraham Lincoln elected? By popular vote? No, he did not win the popular vote. You know what he did? He won the Electoral College. That's how Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator, won despite not winning 51% of the vote. It was split three ways, and Abraham Lincoln wound up winning in the Electoral College. That is how President Abraham Lincoln, the president that oversaw the abolishment of slavery, was put into office. The Electoral College helped end slavery, not the opposite. And by the way, if you want further proof of this, you have to understand where the Electoral College originally came from, because let's say, okay, well, yeah, that was a weird side effect that just happened to take place with the abolishment of slavery, but the founders, they were all a bunch of evil, racist white guys that owned slaves, right? And so they were putting the Electoral College as an attempt to preserve slavery. Yeah, but that's not true either. You see, in the Constitutional Convention, there were two big divisions. One of them was slave states versus free states. This is absolutely true, and this is in accordance with history. So in history, 
you have those two divisions, and there were two states that wanted to preserve slavery, South Carolina and Georgia. That's it. All the other states, including Virginia, including North Carolina, all wanted to get rid of slavery right then and there. But because they had already agreed that all 13 states had to ratify the Constitution, they made a compromise. And because of that, they allowed slavery to continue as an institution in the four southern states and then phase it out over the period of time where they got rid of the slave trade and then eventually they were going to get rid of slavery as well. Obviously, it didn't wind up working out that way, but that was the original plan. Only two states did not want, uh, did not want to abolish slavery right then and there at the Constitutional Convention. But there was another division that people don't talk about. That other division is the division between large states and small states. This was actually the much larger division that caused, actually, to be quite frank, far more problems than the original. So first of all, you'll see here, these are electoral college votes in 1789. So this would have been the time, of course, where the Constitution is being debated and ratified. This is the first electoral college vote. So let's look at who has the most electoral college votes. Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts with 10. South Carolina and Connecticut tied at second for, with seven. New Jersey and Maryland tied for third at six. Fourth, Georgia and New Hampshire with five votes apiece. And then finally, at three, you have Delaware. Now, if you're breaking all this up, you may be looking at this going, wait a second, Caleb, that's only 10 states. You're missing three. Well, not in the 1789 Electoral College. And the reason for that is... New York had an internal dispute, and because of that, had not gone ahead and, and sent electors for the first electoral college, and so New York is out. And then there were also two states that had yet to ratify the Constitution, and that would be North Carolina and Rhode Island. And so because of that, they were not included in the 1789 presidential election either. So these are all 10 states that actually uh, participated in this. And now I'm going to show you this. Uh, if you look at this again, these are all the slave-holding states. So you'll notice there's a pretty healthy mix here that you've got one of the slave-holding states with the most electoral college votes, and you've also got another one with the least electoral college votes, and then you have one in the middle with, uh, with South Carolina at second. And so if you're trying to make the case that the Electoral College was something that was done to preserve slavery, then why is it that when you're looking at Electoral College votes, that the slave states are all over the map on how much power and representation they had in the Electoral College? Frankly, that argument simply does not make any sense. If that was the case, then you would have all of the Electoral College uh, votes, in, in other words, the ones that would have the most Electoral College votes, uh, you would have them all on the lower end. See, now, Georgia, it kind of makes sense to make that argument because Georgia got more representation because they were on the lower end of the Electoral College. They didn't have as many people, which would mean, theoretically, if this were the case, that all of the slaveholding states would have the least Electoral College votes, but that's not what happened. In fact, Virginia and South Carolina were in the top two. Uh, one's tied for first, one's tied for second when it came to Electoral College votes. And so if the Electoral College was a thing to preserve slavery... Well, to be honest, that really doesn't make any sense here. So let's go ahead and look at this because this is also important. The two factions that were broken up 
they were broken up into two groups. There was one supporting what was called the Virginia Plan and one supporting what was called the New Jersey Plan. So the Virginia Plan was the one that was typically favored by the larger states. The New Jersey Plan was one that favored representation by the smaller states and representation by the states themselves. In other words, the ones that would have supported something like the Electoral College as opposed to a straight popular vote where population would wind up winning out regardless. And so let's look at the states that supported the Virginia plan and the New Jersey plan. So obviously the Virginia plan is supported by Virginia. And then also Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. The ones that were in favor of the New Jersey plan, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, and Delaware. This is the one that favored the smaller states, at least in general. So let's go ahead and look at that same list, but this time with all of the slave states highlighted in red. Huh. So all of the slave-bearing states were in favor of the plan that favored the states with the highest population, not the ones that emphasized individual states' rights. And over on the one that supported states' rights, in other words, something more akin to the Electoral College, that was New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, and Delaware, all of which had pretty much phased out slavery by this point. So again, the argument doesn't make sense. If the Electoral College and the representation of individual states as entities as opposed to just populations, if that were the case, they would have all supported the New York plan, not the Virginia plan. In fact, a slave-bearing state of Virginia is the one that came up with the plan that would have representation by population. And so the idea that this is, uh, the Electoral College is a vestige of trying to perfect, uh, or sorry, to, to preserve slavery as an institution is simply laughable. There's no truth to it whatsoever. In fact, the exact opposite is true. The Electoral College actually helped end the institution of slavery. So we've gone over the dumbest arguments trying to get rid of the Electoral College, but what we haven't talked about yet, and I think is important to emphasize, is the reason to keep it. Because ultimately what it does is it forces presidents to run a truly national election. They cannot get elected otherwise. They have to campaign in all 50 states, at least to some degree. Maybe they don't make an appearance in all 50 states, but they have to have some kind of infrastructure on the ground. They have to have representation. Even President Trump, who was pretty much guaranteed to win the state of Alabama and did by a very wide, wide margin, he still had field offices here in Alabama. He still made visits to Huntsville and Mobile and Birmingham. And briefly, I think his bus stopped in Montgomery. I'm not sure that he ever did. But anyway, you know, understanding all of that, even somebody that had it in the bag, as it were, still had to come and campaign to all 50 states. This would not be necessary if the Electoral College were done away with. In fact, it would actually be very easy for you to just campaign in all the major population centers. So you'd have to campaign in New York, and by that I mean New York City, and you'd have to campaign in Los Angeles, and maybe San Francisco, San Antonio, Dallas, Houston, all of our big cities. You could pretty much ignore the entire middle of the country, and there'd be no reason to actually campaign in a more rural state that doesn't have a very big population. Even some of the New England states would get neglected if that were the case. But the founders wanted not just the people, but locations to be represented. They wanted there to be a representation not just of the however, however many people are there, they get the most representation. That's part of it. 
but they also wanted the lifestyles and the differences to be represented because at the time, we were largely a nation of farmers. America was seen as a backwoods rural country, and back then it was. We were frontiers and farmers and ranchers. And so because of that, they wanted that to be preserved later on. They wanted us to not be beholden to the whims of people living in cities that don't understand our local needs and local interests. And so because of that, they put this in place to where the president has to be everybody's president, not just the president of the cities or some major population areas. And so that was something that they put in there to guard that. If you want an example of why that's important, you really don't need to look any further than the EPA. I mean, the EPA is an unmitigated disaster that constantly thinks that bureaucrats in Washington know better than the people that actually have to live on the land and have some kind of vested interest in it. And because of that, a bunch of unelected bureaucrats make decisions for people that have been living on this land for several generations, thinking that somehow they care more about the benefit and the, the welfare of that land than the people that actually live on it and make their living off of it. The founders didn't want that. And that's why they put things like the Electoral College in place, is so those localities could have their voices heard and their interests represented as well. This way, the cities couldn't be ruling over and lording authority over and becoming tyrannical over the rural locations. So let's go ahead and look at this tweet, because I, I think it, this was just hilarious. This is actually an old tweet, but it's one that was put out by AOC uh, a while back. So this was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And you'll see that the tweet she's responding to is, it says Queens has more people than 16 states, FYI. And her response is, uh, yeah, like, uh, yet one more reason to abolish the Electoral College. So that was AOC's take on that. But the truth is, it's the exact opposite. Do you really want a single neighborhood in one city, all who live pretty much the same life? I'm not saying they're a monolith or that they're all homogenous or they don't have their own interests. But let's be honest, the needs and the wants and the political ideas of somebody that lives in a tightly clustered community like Queens, New York, that person's going to have very different interests than somebody that's living out in Nowheresville, Kansas, or slap out Alabama. They're going to have completely different worldviews, completely different lifestyles. And so do you really want all that power concentrated in one neighborhood, in one city, in one state? that they would get the bulk of representation for the entire country and be making rules for them. This is part of the reason that AOC, specifically other Democrats are like this too, but it said things like, yeah, we just need to like get rid of all private cars and stuff and just like all ride on trains. Well, that probably works fine for somebody that has lived in New York their whole life. That probably wouldn't be something that is terribly inconvenient for that person. But if you live in Alabama... It would be ridiculously expensive and not at all efficient to try to do that. Our entire infrastructure is structured around big open spaces where you might have to drive 30 minutes to get to your nearest grocery store. That's just not practical if you don't live in a major metropolitan area like AOC has her entire life. And that's why her policies and her ideas and her lifestyle does not need to dictate to the rest of Alabama or other rural locations the way that they need to live their lives because they don't understand the differences. And by the way, I don't understand what it's like to live in New York, which is why I don't want to tell them how to live. I leave that up to them.
And that's something the, that the Electoral College preserves and protects. And just as a, a final parting shot here, this is an Electoral College map of the Obama versus Romney election broken up by district. Remember, President Obama won this election. And if you break it up by county, this is what that electoral map looks like. Awful lot of red there, isn't it? And you'll notice that even where there's not red, even where it's blue, it's light blue. This is proportional. So the darker blue it is, the more one-sided it was for Democrats. You see how much red there is? That's how much of the country would be completely ignored if the Electoral College were to ever go away. And remember that even in the blue parts, the ones that are light blue, those are the more rural areas. The only ones that are really dark blue are major metropolitan areas because those are the people that tend to vote for Democrats. The big divide between Republican and Democrat, really, it's just almost kind of a shell. In other words, a, uh, a facade of the real debate that is going on in this country, which is rural versus urban. Obviously, it's not always just that. There are going to be some conservatives in urban environments. There are going to be some liberals in rural environments. That is true. But ultimately, it's important to remember that a vast majority of the country, people living out in the rural areas that are not living in major cities, would be completely ignored and not represented at all if the Electoral College were to ever go away. Like anything else, when, it, when something becomes a democracy, it becomes mob rule, which ignores the rights of the individual. That becomes tyranny of the majority. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. The Chaplain's Report today does come from the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be continuing our series in 1 Samuel. So we're just going to go ahead and dive right into this. The only thing you really need to know is that this is directly after David has come. He's seen Goliath. He has seen how impressive he is, how strong he is, but he automatically is like, I don't see why this guy is getting away scot-free with sort of disrespecting and calling out and defying and acting in open rebellion against Israel and Israel's God, and nobody here is willing to do anything about it, so he takes it upon himself to do something about it. Let's go ahead and look in 1 Samuel 17, verses 32 through 33. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. A couple really important things in this particular passage of Scripture. First of all, it proves where David's motives are. Does David want to do this because it's the right thing to do? Yep. Does he want to do it because he believes that that's what God would want him to do? Yes. Is he legitimately angry that this Philistine is going out and defying and, you know, basically verbally trashing Israel and God? Yeah, he's mad about that. But you'll notice there that when he states his own motivation, he says, let no man's heart fail him. This is why David was such an effective leader. 
he wasn't just thinking about his own feelings about the situation. He was also projecting outwardly. He was saying that this man was making God's army terrified, and that shouldn't happen. That they should not be afraid of this guy when they have God on their side. And so David's thinking was, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go out there and I'm going to face this man down so that nobody's heart fails him. David's thought, first and foremost, was, I need to inspire other people to believe in God just like I do. That's why he was a great leader. Because he was thinking about other people and how his actions would influence them. And that's how we get the story that eventually that we do. The second part of that is, it kind of emphasizes the part, I mean, it's already been stated, but it really drives home this point that David is outmatched in every conceivable way. I mean, even if you just ignore the obvious, ignore the fact that Goliath is nine feet tall and this is a teenage boy, ignore the fact that Goliath is decked out in gigantic armor and it says that his spear is so large that the shaft of his spear is like a weaver's beam. So, you know, to put that into context, it's like a, a four by four. They're saying that's how gigantic his staff is or his, uh, his spear is and he's able to wield it because of how strong he is. This dude is a monster much bigger than any professional athlete or, or anybody that you've seen so far. And yet, David has the courage to go up against this person. But this really drives that home because even if you ignore all of the obvious stuff about Goliath just being a giant and having this really big, thick armor and everything, even if you ignore that, experience is still part of this, right? The fact that David, he's a kid that's never killed anybody. He's never been to war. He's never been in a confrontation, at least that we know of, with another person. Now, he had seven brothers, so I'm sure that he's done some roughhousing. But as far as like actual mortal combat with another human being, David's never done that. He's a shepherd. You know who has done that ever since he was David's age and probably a lot younger? Goliath. So Goliath isn't just physically more imposing than him. He also has far more experience killing people than David has. David's experience right now is zero. And so, this is what Saul is trying to drive home and impose upon David. He's like, look, David, you don't stand a chance against this guy. Even if you just ignore all that other stuff, this guy's been killing people. This guy has been a warrior since he was younger than you. You don't stand a chance against this giant. And David's response to this is, I'll be fine. I mean, he doesn't say that, obviously. But David is ready to take on this challenge. Saul is looking at this confrontation through worldly eyes. David is looking at it through spiritual eyes. He's saying, the hearts of the men in this nation are failing them because they're afraid of this giant. I'm going to take it out because that's what God would want me to do, and that is going to cause the other people around me to believe in God. David is seeing this all through a spiritual lens, while Saul can't look past the worldly stuff that is being presented right in front of his face. He can't see past that. So let's go ahead and continue on in this same story in 1 Samuel 17, 34 through 37, where he says, But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came, to, took, uh, came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up again uh, against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, 
The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. You see, to David, this was just another challenge. To David, Goliath is no more scary than the bear, no more scary than the lion, no more scary than anything he has faced in his life. Why? Because he knows he has God on his side. And if God is on your side, it really doesn't matter who's against you. If you have infinity, if we're going to put this in mathematical terms, do you know how much higher infinity is than one? Infinity. Do you know how much higher infinity is than a trillion? Infinity. It's infinity. It doesn't matter. It is equally larger than one number as it is any other number that is not infinity. And that's what God is. Goliath is no more a threat to God than the bear or the lion were. And David understands this, and because of this, he knows that he is going to triumph against Goliath exactly the same way and by exactly the same score as he triumphs against Goliath. That's why he's not afraid of this. And his courage is so absolute, he even convinces Saul. Saul, who has seen this thing through worldly eyes this entire time, and Saul, who also himself is a part of the Lord's army, and not only has not encouraged anybody else to go up against this giant, but he himself has not done so. He hears David's speech, and he goes, Yeah, go ahead. God be with you. He has decided to support David in this. David's courage has really affected even Saul. And so this is where the story kind of wraps up in verses 38 through 40. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag which he had, even in his pouch, and his sibling was in the in his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So this is really the culmination of David's action and his preparation for the battle at hand, which I think speaks to us in the sense that we should never take weapons into battle that we don't know how to use. If we're doing the things that we're supposed to be doing as Christians, we are engaged in spiritual welfare against evil every single day. Now, would the sword have been a better option than the slingshot? Yeah, probably. But not for David, because he didn't know how to use a sword. Now, we know from the scripture later, David gets pretty darn good at using a sword, to the point to where he slays 10,000 Philistines with one. Actually, it says tens of thousands, so we don't even know how many. But a whole lot of bad people died at the blade of David. But not yet. He has not used them yet. They're too big for him. They're too heavy. He can't even walk in these things. And so he just disregards them. Why? Because he knew that ultimately the thing that was going to save him was not going to be having fancier armor or a better weapon than Goliath anyway. His faith wasn't in his weapons. His faith wasn't in his clothes. His faith was not even in his slingshot, the thing that he did wind up taking into battle. His faith was in God. He had faith that God was going to protect him, and if that was going to be the case, what weapon he took into battle really didn't matter all that much. And because of that, he's able to do this. You see, there are a lot of people that try to put their faith in their weapon. There are people, for example, that are really knowledgeable about the Scripture, and, and that's a good thing, 
but they put their faith in their biblical knowledge, or they put their faith in their charisma, or they put their faith in their natural charm and the way that people tend to flock to them and like them. Those are all good weapons to have, but first of all, you shouldn't try to use them if you don't have them. I'm not a charming individual. I understand that. And because of that, I don't try to use charm to ingratiate people so that I can share the gospel with them. I use my knowledge. I use just you know, the scripture that I have available to me, my ability to recall and memorize things like that. That's what I use when I go into battle because I don't know how to use the other things. I don't have that natural charisma, and that's fine. Don't use weapons you're not familiar with and you don't know how to use. Take into battle that which works for you. And the reason that we are able to do that is because ultimately God is with us, and our faith should be in God, not in the talents that God has bestowed upon us not in the blessings that he has given to us. We should use them if we can, but if we don't know how to use them, we need to use whatever God has given to us. God is not going to leave us ill-equipped. God didn't take David's slingshot from him. He let him have it. And because David had faith that God was going to be the one that triumphed in this battle anyway, he was able to use it to its maximum effectiveness because God was with him. And so we need to put our faith in God, not in the things that we have been given. We don't necessarily have to have tons of experience, just like David had no experience in battle when he faced down Goliath. We don't necessarily need a formal education or all this fancy stuff. We don't need that natural charm or charisma. We don't need a lot of money or fancy clothes or any of those things. Those things can be helpful from time to time if we need them and if they're used properly and put in their proper place. But ultimately, we need to remember that to do God's work, the only thing we really need is faith. That's all David actually needed here. And because of that, he was able to triumph over his giants. And we can do the same if we have the same faith. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.